Extraordinary Districts, Season 5. Where are all those dollars going? Episode 4. A Dream Project, Staff Shortages, and Canceling the Ku Klux Klan. Wait, what? Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all children deserve a great education and work to ensure they get it. This is the fourth and final episode of the fifth season of Extraordinary Districts. We are looking at how schools and districts are using $190 billion in federal money that went to help them cope with the effects of COVID. Many educators call them ESSER funds, an acronym for Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Funds. In episodes one and two, we heard that schools, districts, and states are using ESSER money in lots of different ways. Making school buildings safe, tutoring, hiring more staff, buying new curricula, and paying for training. We heard from educators about the responsibility they feel to make sure that the money they have gotten will pay dividends for years to come. In episode three, we heard how two states are using the ESSER funds to push specific initiatives from improving reading in Maryland to improving the principal pipeline in Delaware. Today, we're going to hear from some more educators about how they're using the money. As I was calling around, I heard some interesting things, including some surprises, and I wanted to share them with you. First, I want to take you to Steubenville, Ohio. I've written quite a lot about Steubenville. It's in Appalachian, Ohio, just across the Ohio River from West Virginia and about 40 miles from Pittsburgh. The school district only has about 2,800 students, almost all of whom are from low-income backgrounds. Steubenville has also been one of the highest-performing districts in the state for a very long time, and to hear about how that came to be, I hope you'll go back and listen to Season 1, Episode 3 of Extraordinary Districts, where I interview students, teachers, principals, and superintendents. I also talked with them about how they were handling pandemic schooling. I'll put links in the show notes. I know that the folks in Steubenville are very careful with money, and I was curious how they thought about the ESSER money. So remember, the federal money came in three waves. In the first round, right after COVID hit, Steubenville received $1.1 million. In the second round, it got about $4 million. And the third biggest round brought almost $9 million to Steubenville. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime This is the money to use it for our dreams that we probably would never have enough money to do it any other way. That is Superintendent Melinda Young. We'll get to her dream project in a minute, but I want to make sure that we recognize that, of course, Steubenville spent money addressing direct immediate needs related to the pandemic. Here she is again, together with Kayla Whitlodge, Steubenville's treasurer. The first pot of money, and Kayla can speak to that, that was spent before almost we bought it because the cost of opening last year were just really incredible. Yeah, we used it mainly on supplies and stuff that we needed, like the desk shields, masks, things like that, um, some computers for everybody to go rem- uh, remote or you know work one-on-one with a computer, the hotspots. Those were all purchased mainly with round one of money that was pretty fairly quickly spent right off the bat. 
And then the second and third pot, well, last year we also employed additional tutors and oh, yeah. aides. And I, we added, what, three staff members, mm-hmm. which we have to be really careful with. She's talking here about the fact that this money disappears in 2024. She, like many superintendents, is being careful about how many ongoing obligations she is committing those funds to, like new staff members. Because when you add those staff members, you're really, you know, I don't want to use the word stuck, but you really don't want to lay people off. And we're a relatively young staff now, our teachers, the average is only 12 years. You know, I don't have any, a whole bunch of people retiring anytime soon. So that's a big thought of ours, that if you hire additional staff, you know, you have to um, account for that in your budget going forward, because I don't believe this money will ever come again. One thing I haven't mentioned is that Steubenville has been losing population for decades as factories and businesses closed. The first time I went there, I thought it was a very sad town. Because you know, all of these small towns, we keep losing students one after another. They go to college, they don't come back. But Melinda Young and the other folks in Steubenville City Public Schools are determined that the school should be part of the city's revitalization, both by helping students go into careers that they can do while still living in Steubenville and by attracting more businesses because of their educated population. And so years ago, they began an early college program where college professors teach college classes at the high school. Last year, 57 of their 160 or so seniors graduated with a two-year degree, and other students had college credits. Many are the first in their family to go to college. And that's what we're trying to push right now with all kids, is we're trying to get them to take some college credit just to give them that confidence that they can go on, whether it's like college, a career school, whatever it is, it just gives them, we think, the confidence that I can do this. Steubenville also brought in High Schools That Work, which is a program developed by the Southern Regional Education Board to marry career education to college preparatory high school curricula. Students in Steubenville can choose to study aeronautical engineering and medical careers. But there's a problem that every educator will recognize. Now what we're seeing is at the high school, we're so constrained on space. Mm -hmm. So the federal money is going to help solve that. And that's how we're actually adding a STEM building to the high school. That's what we're using Mm -hmm. our funding for, mainly. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're using $12 or 11 million, 11 million from two and three, and then um, three million from the district money. And um, the STEM building will have 11 classrooms. They're large classrooms that'll give our kids, you know, that opportunity to do project-based learning. There's a makerspace lab in there. Um, We're going to have a full clinic at the high school that will be used two ways. It'll be part of courses that they will actually shadow the nurse practitioners, the lab people, and who else. There's a dentist that's going to be there and also um, an eye doctor. So they'll be able to use all of those things to help them decide on careers. The clinic she is talking about is Change, a nonprofit organization funded by federal money to provide health care to Northern West Virginia and Appalachian, Ohio. It provides health care to students and staff members and their families. But you can go to any one of those if you were a parent 
and your child was sick, you could pick them up at Lynette's school, take them to Harding. They would see them and give them prescriptions, whatever they need. A lot of our, our students, I mean, we have three lined up there today to be vaccinated. So it's been good as far as the COVID mitigation, too. That last voice you heard is Lynette Gorman, principal of West Elementary School and the federal grants administrator for the district. I'll just note that larger districts separate those jobs, but Steubenville is too small to be able to do that. She also said that folks in the clinic did a lot of the COVID testing. Here's Melinda Young again. And the testing has helped us out because I think, like I said, we were able to catch some of those cases that they were asymptomatic, that they would have just kept spreading it in the school. But let's get back to the STEM building. It's 40,000 square feet, and it'll be located on 4th Street south of the high school, and it'll have a bridge that connects to the main high school over. And the city actually... um, we were able to get Dock Street. So that whole street that runs between the blocks, that'll be ours as well. And that'll be outdoor learning space. We've been having that on the back burner for how many years? Close to six. Six or seven years because we had architects, but we actually had it in a different location. And Karen, this is how you know it was absolutely meant to be. The YWCA had been there since 1906. Because of COVID, they weren't really able to get any funding, so they folded. So we were able, once we realized that they were folding, we were going to buy their property. And then um, we invited the neighbors around that block to come see what we were doing. And it was the Salvation Army. And we gave our whole spiel about STEM and how it's going to make a difference. And they were really interested. And on their way out, they go, oh, we thought you were coming. You called us down here to ask if we would sell you our property. And we're like, is that possible? And they said, yeah, like, yeah, you can probably, we can probably make a deal. So we were able to get that property. And then we have that whole block almost. So it was, I just feel like it was meant to be because we never thought in our wildest dreams we would be able to get that property on 4th Street. I always say it was meant to be. It seems like whenever we get an obstacle, it just somehow it all works out. So um, right now we have 100% architect drawings. They're sending out soft bids. Mm -hmm. And if you know of anybody that has money, we can use money. (laughs) (laughs) We just need a couple millionaires. That's what we You know, like there's people that would never miss it. She wants the money to fund programs to be in the new space. We were lucky enough to um, a local foundation that only gives money for health reasons. Um, They gave us $100,000 for a biomed classroom. And that $100,000 will almost cover it. It's $120,000 to actually start that program up. So we'll put in 20. That's what we would use, you know, if we were able to get those donors, because that high tech learning is very expensive. The big thing is to help the kids to make sure if they are staying, they can make a good living. You know, you need middle class jobs. Nobody can live on minimum wage. I should note that the federal guidelines permit districts to spend ESSER money on construction, but caution them that the money disappears in 2024. So there really isn't time to dream something up, get architectural drawings, and build a major project, especially with supply chain problems that have made it difficult to get construction supplies. For that reason, organizations representing superintendents have asked that the U.S. Department of Education consider waivers for construction projects. But the folks in Steubenville have been dreaming of this project for years, and they have the architectural drawings and a construction manager they have confidence in. He keeps saying he's on 
So we got faith in him. <laughs> we have faith on him. And he's going to start purchasing some of the um, bigger items coming up, like as soon as they have the, the finished drawings on the heating and cooling systems and things like that, that might be delayed. So he's pretty much a forward thinker. He may not be the only forward thinker in Steubenville. I think you can see why I wanted to bring you to Steubenville to hear what they are doing. I thought you'd also like to hear from some folks in Kansas I was lucky enough to talk with. Deb Gustafson, Associate Superintendent, Gary County Schools. Jenny Black, the Director of Elementary Education in Gary County Schools. I first met Deb Gustafson and Jenny Black back in 2007 when they were principal and assistant principal of Ware Elementary. Ware is on Fort Riley, which is an infantry base, but it's a regular public school in Geary County. It had been one of the first schools in Kansas to be identified as being in need of improvement, and under the leadership of Dr. Gustafson and Ms. Black, it became one of the top performing schools in the state. I wrote about it in How It's Being Done, published by Harvard Education Press in 2009. I also spoke with them during the pandemic for Extraordinary Districts, and I'll link to those conversations in the show notes. They are now working at the district level, and I talked with them about how the district, which has about 7,500 students, is using its ESSER funds. You won't hear any grand plans like in Steubenville, but you will hear about a district grappling with some of the same issues faced by districts around the country. Here's Dr. Gustafson. We developed a six-year strategic plan for the district in terms of student achievement, social and emotional learning, parental engagement, and retention and recruiting of staff. Those are our four primary areas. And we have a multitude of different efforts and strategies embedded in that plan that range from hiring truancy officers to try to get our kids back in school, just a a variety of activities in our strategic plan. And we're utilizing our ESSER funds to help support our efforts in that strategic plan. When school buildings first shut down in March 2020, Geary County Schools undertook a very quick project to massively improve ventilation in their buildings. We went fully remote after spring break of 2020 in March. That March to July is when we implemented everything that we were going to do for COVID mitigation in our buildings because the students weren't in the buildings. We had access to all of the buildings. And and honestly, we used a lot of our own funds and expenditures during that time because there wasn't ESSER money or funneling channels to, to be pushed out. So we used general fund money to prepare our buildings to go back to on-site learning in August. We had depleted a lot of the general budget getting getting ready for kids to come back. And then in August, we depleted a significant amount of our budget with training our teachers to go remote and then to make the transition back to on-site. So we used a lot of hourly wages to, to prepare people to make those transitions. When we came back on-site in the fall, we had a model of both remote learning and on-site learning for a whole year. So that created the need for some more professional development for those teachers that were remote. Because the district spent so much of its money on building repairs and the teacher training necessary to first go online and then transition back into school buildings, the district is using the ESSER funds to instead buy the curricula that the district had planned to buy before COVID ever hit. For example, it's bought a new elementary math curriculum and, well, we'll hear. 
We are utilizing our ESSER funds to assist with tutoring, with what we call is the COVID gap, educating kids, particularly those who have literally not been in a school environment for a year or longer. So a lot of tutoring. We are utilizing them for curriculum purchases. We are adopting a new um, social and emotional learning curriculum to meet the social needs of our students preschool through 12th grade. We also are changing some of the ELA materials that we are putting in our secondary schools, again, for a more common approach to kids who need more ELA support, even at the secondary level. You know, there's kind of always this concept that by fifth grade, everybody has learned how to read and be able to read all of the content materials that they have. But We all know that that's not accurate and that COVID has probably even created more of a gap in our kids that transition from elementary school into middle school and from middle school into high school in in terms of preparedness. Back in 2007, when I first went to WEAR, it was using Success for All, which is a structured reading program that incorporates a lot of what we know about reading instruction. It wasn't used in all the schools in the district, but WEAR had found it very helpful. But when a new superintendent came in, he put in place a new English language arts or ELA curriculum in all the elementary schools. I asked how students were doing with it. Here's Jenny Black. And what has happened, and we've got data that supports it in looking at the district-wide, especially in our kindergarten and first grade where we're working on phonology and phonics, we're finding that our kids are not meeting the standard that we would expect. And so right now we are in the process of actually creating a module for all of our K-1 teachers to go through with basically a model of how phonics must be taught. And it doesn't matter what curriculum you use. These are the strategies that must be implemented in order to teach phonics effectively. We also have 40 teachers and we're trying to get another 40 to go through some letters training. We last heard about letters training in episode two when we were hearing from folks in Richmond. It is training for teachers developed by reading researcher Louisa Motes to help them understand the relationship between the 44 sounds of the English language and the 26 letters of the alphabet and how to teach that to students. So there's a lot of professional learning that's going on in Geary County. Lots of money funneled towards professional development and steering chair work, committee work among teachers. One of the things that's definitely been demonstrated is that when we started school up this year, we definitely experienced a lot more behaviors from students, especially among the kiddos who hadn't been in school for about a year and a half. And it kind of rocked some of our environments pretty significantly, weren't quite prepared as we should have been for that. So we've definitely funneled some of our ESSER funds towards the Safe and Civil Schools professional development. Safe and Civil Schools is an organization that provides professional training to educators about how to address culture and discipline. We've been a Safe and Civil Schools school district for many, many, many years, but we kind of had to rehone some practices that we had in, in that arena. We'd gotten pretty complacent. And when some of these kids rolled in, tell you the first couple months of school were rough. They were really rough. They were rough at every level. Our preschoolers, our kindergartners, our first graders had never been in a structured environment to learn. And then, you know, we had all these kids coming back from remote that were struggling. And just because we wanted to create the perfect storm right in the middle 
of, of all of this, we moved into a brand new $130 million high school. Just because coming out of COVID and opening a brand new school of that magnitude wasn't quite enough, we did it with a brand new principal and four brand new assistant principals. You can hear in Dr. Gustafson's voice her appreciation for just how difficult it is for new leaders to lead a school building, especially when the entire leadership team is new and students have been out of school for a while. She and I have had many conversations about the importance of school leadership, and I know that she thinks what the team at the high school is doing represents a huge challenge. But that challenge is made even greater because of a problem many districts are experiencing. We've sat this entire school year with about 30 vacancies just at our high school level. And then, um, you know, probably five or six different specialty position vacancies at our at our elementary level, too. So we are definitely feeling the crunches of the hiring challenges. Mm -hmm. We're also using it to get a little bit creative in terms of our substitute situation because we're so short for substitutes. So we're doing more recruiting of that looking at paying some um, temporary licenses for individuals that can't come up with that upfront money (laughs) and some situations like that to try to get more people into our pool. One of the things Geary County is looking to do is increase the pay for substitute teachers from $100 a day to $120 a day. But that's not the only issue. I mean, that is our problem across the bus drivers that all need a CDL license and can't have any health issues. I mean, trying to find them is the challenge. Paraprofessionals that will stay. We're not paying $15 an hour, but we pay pretty good. 13, not 15. That's good for our area. It is good for our area. And if you get up, you know, at $18.50, that's what we're paying our teachers for doing some work. We contract out our busing services and our custodial services. So we're not really utilizing any ESSER funds in those two significant areas of shortage since those are contracted, but we are increasing our contracts in both of those areas. We're going to use some of it to do some revamping of our foods program after COVID fears going to all packaged, prepackaged food products, our clientele's about ready to, so we're gonna try to revamp. When we contracted out our transportation services, and we went from having our own busing services to contracting out, we had this big bus barn where we used to house all the buses and do all the maintenance on all the buses. We remodeled that into a central kitchen. It's really, really nice. We took our whole board of education there. When they walked in and saw the mountain of boxes of prepackaged meals, everything just sitting in boxes ready for lunch, you know, they weren't impressed. So our board is going to be on a campaign to improve our lunches. And a lot of processed food is what it is. A lot of processed foods. A lot of processed food. We've moved to two days a week where they're getting a warm lunch. But last year, it was all cold lunch served because part of it is we're trying to spread kids out and you're trying not to, you know, group together. So we needed to do that. So hopefully we can improve that. That would be a good plan. I, I actually think it's a, a good effort. I, I And I'm kind of glad it's coming from that level. I mean, I looked at lunch yesterday, the day before. And it was two mozzarella sticks, four grape tomatoes, and a fruit cup. But we can't find cooks. We haven't been able to, even not cooking, (laughs) 
we can't find just the cooks to open the prepackaged food. We can't even find those. We've been very, very short in that area. Just for example, where we always had six people in the kitchen just to get everything out and get it warmed up and serving. And this year, the most they've had at any one time was two. Deb Gustafson and Jenny Black are talking about challenges schools and districts around the country are facing. They're having difficulties hiring not just teachers and substitute teachers, but bus drivers, maintenance workers, and cooks. You have heard how focused these expert educators are on helping students make up for what they may have lost during the pandemic. They want to improve reading and math instruction and are making sure that teachers know how to build a culture of teaching and learning. But the logistical support for that work, making sure kids get to school, are fed, and even have teachers, is proving difficult. The staffing issues that Dr. Gustafson and Ms. Black talked about aren't just in Kansas. Kimberly Hoffman, who is in charge of making sure Baltimore City Public Schools spends its ESSER money well, told me that when Baltimore held public forums to hear what the community wanted to spend ESSER money on, they heard over and over again that students needed social and emotional support. Some of those pieces that, that we heard loud and clear, more mental health, more support for this. We are trying to, to ramp that up as fast as possible, but then to explain to parents in the community that there's a social worker shortage. No one wants to hear that there's a social worker shortage. No one wants to hear that there is a national school nurse shortage. So I think where sometimes it becomes a challenge is you have that best intention to meet the needs of your community. But when the reality of finding people to do, it doesn't matter, we've got the money, but now it's finding those people become that rub and that challenge. School nurses don't get paid anywhere near when a hospital nurse gets paid. So again, there are some of those just inherent challenges that are years in the creating that this pandemic gives us an opportunity to correct, but they're not easy course corrections. Her colleague, Jenny Wu, told me that one response has been to create wellness teams at every school. Trying to create a team, I think, was part of, I think, our way of trying to um, adapt for the fact that you might be missing (laughs) a person. I do think like part of what we were trying to do by creating these wellness support teams is have a more comprehensive and aligned approach between these different folks who all support right, students in a school, really make them collaborate, (laughs) right, Um, in a way that we haven't necessarily done before. There are definitely ways in which it is definitely not like any other school year and, you know, constantly having to make adjustments based on where people are and, you know, people are overwhelmed and, you know, behind and, you know, so how do we like really think through what things kids really need in a particular class or grade level um, to try and support them in this time? Jenny Wu, who's in charge of the city's efforts to improve schools, is reflecting what I suspect many educators are thinking about, that the folks in schools feel overwhelmed but want to help support students through a difficult time. I want to finish with one more conversation. I'm Lorna Lewis. I am the superintendent in the Malvern School District on Long Island, New York. This was the first time Dr. Lewis and I had talked. She is the relatively new superintendent of Malvern, a district of about 1,700 students in Nassau County. That is Long Island, New York. I wrote about Malvern High School in my 2017 book, Schools That Succeed, because it's a very high-achieving school that is mostly students of color, most from working-class homes. The principal, Dr. Vinnie Romano, 
participated in a couple of previous conversations we had as part of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. I'll link to those in the show notes. His superintendent, Dr. Lewis, has had a very distinguished career of leading districts in New York and is past president of the New York State Council of School Superintendents. When we talked, she was just back from the State Conference of Superintendents, and I asked her what she is hearing from her fellow superintendents about how they are using the federal funds. They're doing creative things, but they're all using, I think, the funds in a way to support their learners. Each area will be different. and The funding is different. The issue we have is what happens when these things go away. So, for example, uh, one of the things I didn't have a social worker um, in my middle school. I had a one social worker that was shared between the two elementary schools and no social worker at the middle school. That was a position that I opened up, a full-time social worker. We are concerned that the teachers that we've put in to lower class size, the social workers that we put in, down the road when we go back to fiscally constraining times, where is that money going to come from? You know, we're good for three years. We're good for three years. I asked her what I had heard from Kimberly Hoffman and Jenny Wu from Baltimore about the shortage of social workers and school nurses. So to that point, and I have raised the red flag on this, we need speech pathologists and speech therapists. And I'm going to tell you why. Our kindergarten through two, for the first time in their life, they remove the mask. When you're learning phonemic awareness, when you're trying to figure out where to place your tongue for that TH or some of those difficult words, and you have no models because your teacher has been masked and you've been masked, if you're having trouble with the R's and you know all of those very difficult, the CH's, um, the diphthongs, you're gonna need those people to help those children get back to speech, proper speech. And I've been saying that's going to be the new field because people have been masked for so long. We're just now beginning to see the, the, the issues and there are no speech therapists to be had. So what, that's what I'm saying, that schools of education, and I've spoken to some of the programs around Long Island, that those are fields that we need to get people into because we're going to need we're going to need the social workers, the guidance counselors, the social emotional supports, psychologists in the future. And there there's not a, there's not that group to pull from because they're not in the trainings, they're not in the schools of ed. In the old days, if people worked in public schools, that you do a forgiveness of student loans. That's the only way you're going to get people to want to go into the fields and require them to give five years of service. Schools of education have no enrollments. They're struggling. They're struggling. But we have, because you're going to go in, spend all this money, and you're coming out. Do you have a job? You know, they keep talking about we have to grow the pipeline. You can't grow the pipeline if you're not going to create incentives for the pipeline. Again, these staffing issues are being faced all over the country and raises a question about whether three years of federal money can make a dent in them. Because a degree in social work or speech therapy, for example, takes somewhere between two and four years, depending on where you live. 
But I wanted to know more about how Malvern is using its federal COVID funds, and I think you'll hear some familiar themes. From 2020 to 2022, we will have a total of $4 million. So that's that's a lot of money, but also a lot of need that we had. So when we first got the CARES Act, that was right in the middle of the beginning of COVID, that's 2020, and that you did immediate things like PPE and security, cleaning, you know, those kinds of things. Then the cursor funds began our next school year. And for that, we used um, staffing. We used a lot on staffing to, um, for instructional reasons. We also used it to get the technology up and running, the iPad. We have iPads for all students. One of the main things we, I did when I came, we have old buildings, very, very old buildings, and none of them, K through five, were air-conditioned. So I promised the community that the first set of funds that we got would put air conditioners in every instructional space. And that was completed by Memorial Day of 2021. And, you know, that starts our warm seasons. So, you know, in a time when you have to think about air filtering and, you know, that's the the next level of mitigation. Um, So we did spend quite a bit of the funds, the initial curse of funds, with technology and with air conditioning and staffing. So those were the two first two buckets. Then in ESSER, ESSER really defined some of the ways that we had to spend the monies. One of them was in summer programs and uh, the other was in after-school programs and, and learning loss. So we had to address that with the ESSER funds. That was the first thing we had to do and also social-emotional supports. So for summer school, we ran a STEM program. We ran an enrichment program. We ran a program for any pre-K student that is the kids coming into kindergarten. We went full throttle on the literacy program, so we didn't pull back. We did training before teachers left. We did training in June. Then we, for the first time, gave them their materials for the summer. Usually you buy those things in the fall, but we were able, because we had the COVID funds, we didn't have to rely on the next budget to buy it. We bought it in June and we gave it to them over the summer. I sometimes wonder if most people understand how many trade-offs school districts usually have to make and how they spend money. Dr. Lewis is demonstrating that in detail by saying that because of the federal funding, the district didn't have to pick and choose the components of its literacy program. Malvern could go what she calls full throttle on buying all the components and paying for all the training teachers need. Plus, it was able to buy the books and materials early enough so that teachers could look at them over the summer and not just be faced with a pallet of plastic-wrapped materials on their first day back in school. We heard something similar from the folks in Richmond. This is one of those small, hidden ways an infusion of money helps schools teach students. And then we also ran a program for the elementary schools, the students who were, we identified as struggling readers and um, and writers. The thing she was really excited about were classes they offered in computer coding and in operating drones. We actually, for the summer, we had kids addicted to coding and droning. We created droning classes with kids who got licensed to be droners during the summer. 
and licensed. I mean, they, they, in fact, got certificates in coding that are unbelievable, which then pushed our program for the school year. So in the summer, we launched that. And then so we had to up what we had to offer in the fall. And we have kids who are really coders now. So we use the funding to purchase the support for that. It really has changed the lives and trajectories of some of the kids because they've opened. I mean, you should see these kids code video games. I watch them. And these are seventh graders and they're amazing. That's a world that they would never have had. But there was something else that Malvern is doing that took me by surprise. It really doesn't have so much to do with the federal COVID funds as to demonstrate the kinds of things students can do when they are supported by their teachers and school and district leaders. Our students have go to a K-2 school that's called Maurice Downing that is, sits on a street called Linder Place, named after the grand cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan. Currently, our high school students were engaged in some very deep research. They were given a project called What's in a Name? We've become national. Um, We've received attention from all over the country because these students, and you know our students are very articulate, well-researched, well-spoken, and they created a research and, and they had choices in what they could do. They could do a documentary, a poem, an artwork, essays, and speeches. And they gathered all the information about Paul Linner and presented it to City Hall. We are now in the process of civic engagement and working on getting the name changed for that street. We had kids in eighth grade, ninth grade, through to 12th grade. Every single senior who was involved in the project wrote about it. In their, as their college essay, they, because it was such an impactful. First of all, they didn't even know about Paul Lindner when they started. We didn't tell them anything. We just said, this is a person who was a, a founding father of the town. He gave a lot of money to uh, build buildings and he owned that part of town. So he named the street after him. And on that street is the Malvern Library, the Malvern Elementary School, the one of the major churches and homes. The children did the research and they came to their opinion and and now they are driven. They are driven towards social justice, driven towards seeing how change can be brought about. It's wonderful to watch how empowering this has been for them. It's what I think education has to be about. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the history of Long Island, the Ku Klux Klan had a significant presence there in the 1920s when the organization had a major resurgence. As Grand Cyclops, Paul Linder had a major role in its activities. He led objections to the building of a Catholic church in Malvern. He led burning crosses on people's lawns. And he led a campaign to drive out a Jewish pharmacist in nearby Freeport. Malvern students have written about that history and lobbied the village board to change the name. Whether they will succeed is still up in the air. I'll link to a couple of news pieces on their campaign. So I want to wrap up this episode and this season of Extraordinary Districts. We've talked with educators in small districts, large districts, and in between, rural, suburban, and urban. And what we've heard is that the federal COVID relief money was absolutely critical to being able to reopen school buildings. 
I think we've also heard that reopening was not a simple matter. To be at all safe, educators needed to address ventilation and other mitigation efforts. Even with lots of mitigation, people still got sick. I heard, for example, about the single mother of a kindergartner who died of COVID. COVID was not the focus of this podcast, but it provides the backdrop for it. In this podcast, we've heard from educators who are clear-eyed about the costs that the school building closures had on student learning, but are unfazed. Their motto seems to be, keep calm and greatly improve instruction. They know that the federal COVID money may be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to improve their school buildings and the knowledge and skill of their teachers and staff members, as well as provide unique opportunities for their students. But they also know that if they can demonstrate how useful the money is in improving education for their students, that will be a strong argument for more money in the future. Many of them, I'm happy to say, are committed to documenting what they are doing and evaluating whether their efforts have the effects they hope for. I hope they do. But if they don't, we still will have learned important things. I want to thank you for listening to Extraordinary Districts. I hope you have heard what I have heard. Expert educators who have learned a great deal about what schools can do and are determined to make sure their students learn a great deal. That's what we should all want. Thank you to everyone at the Education Trust who has helped support the making of this podcast, including, but not limited to, Robin Harris, Nicole Grayson, and Jack Fleming. Thank you also to Mike Patillo, who composed the music and recorded, edited, and mixed the shows at Tonal Park. And of course, thank you to the Wallace Foundation, which provided support for this podcast. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time. Thank you.